Good morning, y'all. Yeah. My name is Jonah. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, theirs. I'm the lead pastor here at Zao, and I am so pumped for our final sermon in a series, Imposter, um, where we're trying to find the real Jesus in light of all of these ideas we have from culture about Jesus that don't seem to line up with scripture. So in this final week, um, we are taking uh, uh, this idea of Jesus as kind of conflict avoidant or like super chill Jesus, and we're kind of debunking that a little bit. Because Jesus, who is obviously this like figure of peace, scripture calls him meek, is also incredibly, incredibly powerful. And this is a story where Jesus gets really, really riled up. In fact, I almost called this sermon, Real Jesus Started a Riot. And so we've got to square our ideas with Jesus that we have floating about this culture with the Jesus of scripture that doesn't always line up. And here we have a real dissonance. Because a lot of times when people are saying, what would Jesus do? Usually they're urging you to, what? Be, be calm, be gentle. There's a lot of like, be quiet, let it go. And do we see Jesus being calm, gentle, and quietly letting things go in the temple in this scripture? Not so much. Yeah, we have Jesus getting super, super riled up and starting a riot, turning over tables. How many folks have heard that idea before, that Jesus is somebody who flips tables or turns over tables? All right, so this is something that is, it's a powerful enough story that it has worked into our ethos. So how exactly do we square that with the Jesus that we talk about as like mild-mannered and super chill? We don't. Exactly. Like, this is kind of, it's sort of a running joke. It's like this weird anomaly. Like, what a weird story that Jesus did that. Um, I, I love, there's a meme online that just has, like, uh, art, uh, like an art, artistic depiction of Jesus um, flipping over tables. And actually, from the Gospel of John, uh, the scripture says that he forms a whip with cords, and he's whipping people. And so there's a meme that says, when anyone ever asks you, uh, what would Jesus do? Just be aware that flipping over tables and whipping people with cords is, in, is like part of the option. Okay, well, what would Jesus do? Where's my whip? So the temple, he's starting this riot in the temple. And the reason that I call it a riot is because there, we have to know exactly what's happening here. He's not just like walking in. It's not like Jesus like walking into this room today and being like, Boom. Jesus is going into the temple during a particular time of year. It's Passover. Um, this is the last week of Jesus' ministry where he's like really riled up. This is when lots of stuff comes to a head. So as we've mentioned before here, he has spent all of his time in the countryside preaching and teaching among peasants. And now the whole, uh, you know, there's this whole big pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover. Um, and Passover uh, is a very particular time in the Jewish year. It's a celebration of liberation. And so everyone's already a little riled up. Like everyone's already kind of tapped into this history, this, this liberation history of God freeing God's people from slavery under Egypt. And so there's a lot of tension in the city. People are, are celebrating that history, but they're also celebrating it while under the watchful eye of the Roman Imperial Guard, who is always present in that city, but during, during uh, Passover gets extra, just like extra intense. 
because they're like, oh, the people we're subjugating are celebrating their liberation. Let's not have that repeated in history. So they, they have this like, big energy that's happening in Jerusalem, and there are probably 300 to 400,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. And the center of everything is the temple. The temple is the center of commerce. It's kind of the economic center, and so there's a lot happening and a lot of, a lot of exchange of goods. Um, so we know that there are tables of money changers, but there's also uh, livestock. People, a lot of what people are changing money for is so that they can buy livestock for, um, for sacrifice. And so there's, there's like these money changing tables. There are these places that you can then, once you've changed your money over, you can buy livestock. So there's animals everywhere. And then there's thousands and thousands of people. And the day before Jesus walks into this space, he has has like rallied all of his friends from the countryside who are like processing him in. We call that Palm Sunday. And so Jesus has just done this very big public procession into the city saying, I am here. And with all of his people being like, Hosanna in the highest. He's got this crew with him. And so then, so that's Sunday. And this is Monday. So what does he do in his first kind of real experience of the temple during this week? Well, with all of these money changers and livestock and crowds, that's when Jesus starts flipping over table and whipping uh, livestock and driving them into a stampede. I mean, we don't get a lot of details in the scripture because it's a big enough book. They try and keep it as concise as possible. But that's what's happening here. Is this, in this massive crowd with all of this energy, Jesus is starting a riot and now some people have, have had a really hard time with this, especially um, the, the John account, which says that he gets a cord and starts using it as a whip. And so people are like, oh man, but I was really committed to Jesus as like a nonviolent person and what is happening? How do we square this whip with nonviolence? And the answer is that Jesus, like lots of folks who are engaged in riots, don't consider disruption and destruction of property as violence. Jesus is not harming people. Jesus is turning over tables and driving this into chaos because all is not well and needs disruption. So this is a, a very highly confrontational form of nonviolent and yet destructive resistance. And so we've got this image of Jesus starting a riot during this massive festival in a very important public space during the most holy time of the year. And we've got to figure out how that fits with Jesus, the meek and mild. So interestingly, meek is, is a word that's been used to describe Jesus, and it's in scripture. And meek doesn't mean what we think it means. Meek doesn't mean what we've been taught it means. In fact, meek, we've been taught to think like meek means, um, you know, like weak or not powerful. Right? Any other associations we have with meek? Quiet. Timid? Sure. Yeah, so quiet, timid, weak, not powerful. Well, so meekness actually in the Greek context, and that's the language that we're, that we're reading this in is Greek. So the word that we translate into meek in English is a Greek word that would have had a Greek context. And that Greek context, that word was used usually um, in... Um, in the breaking in of animals. 
So uh, meekness was about like horses or oxen. And it was about taking, uh, taking an, an animal who was wild and powerful and, uh, and breaking them in, uh, introducing them into uh, a relationship, like a domesticated relationship, um, where that, they, that power they had, that explosive power, you know, think of an ox, how powerful an ox is. But that power is now under perfect control. So meekness is not timidity or weakness. Meekness is power under perfect control. Power under the authority of God, in fact, that says I'm not going to um, exert myself um, on impulse. I'm not going to exert myself to prove my own power. I'm going to use my power um, on behalf of the God who, to whom I'm obedient. It's actually kind of an obedience thing. And so what that tells us is that Jesus is meek, not because he's weak or timid or quiet, but because his power is under perfect control, the control of God. So we know then that Jesus is not just like losing his marbles and, and getting super pissed and just like, like starting a riot on accident. We know that Jesus is making a choice making controlled decisions. He's not losing his temper. He's not flying off the handle. He has made a choice to come in and disrupt intentionally. And this is so hard for us to understand because in our culture where we want everything um, to be orderly and we don't like disruption, in our culture where status quo needs to be maintained, we like to think of even the most powerful of like outbursts as being random or unplanned. Jesus is an activist and an organizer. Jesus is a political strategist. Jesus is engaging the powers that be in an intentional way. So saying that Jesus just got so mad he couldn't take it anymore is like saying Rosa Parks got so tired she just sat down. Which is, again, the narrative we have in our culture. Because it is too Hard for us to accept that Rosa Parks was a brilliant strategist working um, with many other community members in an orchestrated campaign to oppose oppression, which is true. And if that's news, welcome. And there's so much cool stuff you have to learn. It's awesome. But Jesus is doing that same thing here. Jesus has his people. He's not walking in alone. He's got his crowd. And they, the text says that and references that. Because as Jesus is disrupting this important, powerful um, center of commerce, center of authority in the temple, it says that the authorities wanted to kill him, but they didn't, they couldn't, for fear of the crowd. Jesus is not acting alone. Jesus is with the people and orchestrating resistance to oppression. So again, why? Like, what, what is this? What's so important about what's happening in the temple right now that Jesus is having a planned uh, action, a planned protest here? Well, as I mentioned, Passover was a, a celebration of liberation. When the Jewish people were freed by God from slavery in Egypt. And when they, when they uh, were freed, and when, when God intervened to free them from Egypt... They fled into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, uh, it was hard. I mean, there were, there were moments, there are moments in scripture where, where the Israelites in the wilderness are saying, uh, why don't we just go back to Egypt? At least we know we'll get fed there rather than die in this desert. 
It was difficult. But God was with them in this intimate and powerful way. And God had promised them that they were going to be delivered into a new land. God actually, as they were kind of this nomadic people for 40 years, God uh, traveled with them. There was uh, something called the tabernacle. And it was functionally a tent. Um, and, and as they went, it got bigger and bigger. It was this whole huge setup, but they would travel with it. And that tabernacle was the, the meeting place with God. It was the place where God was most concentrated, most present, was inside that tent that traveled with them in the desert in this incredibly intimate way. And they brought that tabernacle with them as they traveled and, and as they were displaced and on and on and on. And now the new tabernacle or the place where God is most is the temple. And that is why everyone is coming to the temple during Passover, because they're trying to be as close to God as possible, to be present to God who is with them, the God who comes to liberate. But the temple is a really elaborate structure. There are many layers and chambers. Only some people are allowed in certain places. And, and at this point, um, the, the place where God is most, so God is most in the temple, but most, most in the inner chambers, and most, most, most in the holy, in the holy area, and most, 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 most in the holy of holies, it's called. That's where God lives and is and is concentrated. And in order to become close to God, you had to make sacrifices. Now, sacrifices in the Jewish system are not what we tend to think about when we use the word sacrifice now. Sacrifice, uh, we tend to associate with suffering and pain. But sacrifice in the Jewish system was about relationship. It was about repairing a relationship with God. If you had, if you had wronged God, it was about enjoying a relationship with God because God loves us and is wonderful. And sacrifice, we can kind of understand in two different forms ancient ways of connecting through relationship. One is a gift and one is a meal. A gift would be kind of the equivalent of a burnt sacrifice. Um, so that was when you, when you brought to the temple something that, that you burned completely and there was this kind of beautiful image of, of the smoke rising up into the heavens. This thing that I have that I value, God, I'm offering it to you and it'll burn up and go up in this beautiful smoke towards you and it's yours now. And the meal was something called a blood sacrifice. So this is when they would take um, livestock and, uh, and, and kill it, um, the way that we do for all of our meals that include meat. And so they would kill this livestock and they would offer the blood, they would pour the blood on the altar. And this was actually a way of, of making it holy. The Latin for sacrifice actually means to make sacred. So they would make this, this uh, meal sacred. They would offer the blood of that animal and then they would cook it. And then it was like a big feast. One of my um, Jewish friends has referred to it before as a big community barbecue, a holy community barbecue. And, and so that was, these were the two parts of it, the gift and the meal. And that was all mediated by priests. So priests were a special class of people um, they had been chosen uh, as lineage from one particular family. And the priests were the ones who were called by God to help make this happen, to create space, to create 
um, ritual and to create a sense of holiness so that you could have a place to come offer your gift to God, so that you could have um, support as you share this meal. But the priests and the priestly class had really shifted over time from this beautiful um, Jewish system that had uh, purely religious um, kind of intentions and now was in the messy world where it got wrapped up in everything else around it, as all things do and all religion does. And so at this point, now when the Jewish people are under Roman occupation, now there's intervention from Rome. We've talked here before, um, and if you're, if you're new here today, know that you'll hear me talk about again, um, this real intense tension around the Roman occupation and what that was like for Jewish people, but also the way that many Jewish authorities in Jesus' day were beginning to collaborate with Rome. They were co-collaborators in their own oppression and the oppression of their people. And they did so to get these kind of middle management positions of authority that gave them some amount of power, but also then that power was under the control, not of God. This isn't meek power under perfect control of God. This is meek, uh, this is power under the control of Rome, under the control of the empire. And so it becomes distorted and abused. And over history, over the course of history, for reasons I won't go into, that one family that had, had been the family of priests became four. There were four families. And now under Roman occupation, the way that the high priest was chosen was by the Roman governor. So someone completely outside the system, not Jewish, not believing in any of this, not valuing the sacrificial system, not valuing the relationship between God, but valuing empire and power and political gain, that person got to choose who's in charge of the temple, who's in charge of these gifts and meals. And the Romans would pit those families against one another would take them out of power as soon as they were, they were not pleasing and put someone else in who was going to be a better stooge. So at this point, we've got Caiaphas. Caiaphas in power. He and Pontius Pilate were like this. And so they were collaborating. Caiaphas is deep in bed with Pilate. And the temple system reflects that because now it's all being headed up by these folks who have been co-opted by Rome. And this isn't uncommon. This isn't uncommon for religion and spiritual practice, which is so powerful for that power and that beauty to be taken by other systems and manipulated and twisted and turned into something not only evil, but oppressive. Borg and Crossan are a couple of, of scholars that um, have really informed my understanding of this story in particular. And they talk about this as a domination system. What they say is that domination systems are really common throughout history. It's how empire works. And they say there are three main components of a domination system. Political oppression, so that's the, uh, the occupation of, of the Jewish people by Rome and this presence of, uh, of power that always dominates and controls. Economic exploitation, we talked a little bit about that last week with the, the system of taxation and tribute and the way that folks would be um, kept and controlled by their own poverty. And then finally, religious legitimation. And this is where the temple comes in. That somehow these domination systems need to have some sort of explanation 
This is how throughout history you have um, not just the Christian church, but all kinds of faiths ending up propping up horrible empires and horrible regimes. Because in order to function, they need a narrative. God gave us this power. And so the way that religious legitimation worked in Jesus' context is that the Roman governors would appoint these high priests who would control all of the religious activity and they were the ones saying, Rome's not so bad, pay your taxes. So the temple is no longer a house of God. And Jesus calls it a den of robbers. This is the domination system at work. Now, when we've talked before about, you know, this den of robbers, den of thieves, sometimes people will interpret that as strictly the money changers. And there is this kind of focus, this narrow focus on maybe the money changers were not doing good ethical business, that they were shortchanging people. Um, And Jesus was upset about that, that people were being overcharged um, in in their kind of money exchange. But this is bigger than that. And Borg and Crossan point out that in that metaphor, den of robbers, the den is not actually where the thieving takes place. The den is where the robbers retreat to, having gotten all of their spoils. The temple has become a den of robbers because this is the home, this is the hub of that exploitation system. This is the place that those who have gained and those who have profited from this co-opted system come with their spoils to lavish in their riches. And yes, the money changers are a part of that. And yes, all of this is working together towards this, but this is bigger than any one exchange, any one Uh, piece of commerce. This is a whole system that has said the only access to God is through me and I will profit off of it. And what Jesus is saying here is you cannot leverage access to God. You are profiting off of a system that is evil. You are profiting off of people's natural relationship to their God. You are turning something that is beautiful, that is a house of relationship into a house of oppression and domination. Jesus is challenging the entire priestly and sacrificial system in this moment, which has become co-opted by empire. And Jesus is saying, you cannot keep people from God. People were disproportionately affected by this system, by the way. For instance, the uh, scripture specifically calls out uh, those who are selling doves. Doves were purchased by folks who couldn't afford some of the spendier items that were mandated by law. So it was, you would sacrifice a lamb, or if you were very poor, two doves. And so in particular, it was saying, you know, Jesus was saying, these things that, that, that dole out based on economic merit, these systems that you have set up that say, only those of you who can afford to buy into Rome get access to God. This is what I'm turning over. This is what I'm destroying. This is what I am driving out of the house of God, which is the place of meeting God. Remember the tent in the desert, the place of meeting God. That is what the temple is for. So why do we try and buy our way to God through the tools and monies of our oppressor? The reason there were money changers there, if you were here with us last week, you know that Roman uh, coins 
had a stamp of Caesar on it, a graven image. This was against God's law. So you couldn't buy uh, sacrificial animals with uh, blasphemous money. So you were trading in the money of empire to get money that had the appearance of faithfulness and using that money to get your sacrifice so that you could have access to God. But where did you have to start? With the commerce and money of empire. It is not empire that gives us access to our God. Our God is our God. And just as we are stamped with the face of God, just as we are reflections of who God is, and we belong then to God, God offers herself back to us freely. These meals, these gifts, they are not ways to earn God. They're ways to be deep with God. When you have a meal with loved ones, are you trying to earn their presence by offering them food? No. You're being with them. You're sharing a meal. In our practice, we share a meal every week. The communion table is a meal that Jesus offers to us, a kind of sacrifice, a blood sacrifice that makes sacred this meal we share. Jesus' turning over of tables is the declaration that anyone mediating your access to that table is not of God, but is of empire. That that table is set for all God's people. That there are no barriers and restrictions, and anyone telling you that you have to go through them in order to receive the table of the Lord is lying. And that if those tables are not open to all, then they are tables that deserve to be flipped. They are tables that deserve to be called out publicly with as many angry people around as you can muster. That we are not supposed to sit idly by when the church or any other institution says, you are not worthy of God until. That God comes to us. That God travels with us in the wilderness. That yes, we have sacred places and sacred communities. Yes, ritual helps us connect to God. But no one has the right to keep us from God. Ever. God is yours. This turning over of tables is a foreshadowing of another monumental event in Jesus' ministry at the temple later that week. Because as Jesus is on the cross, Jesus who sacrifices his life in order that relationship might be right, as his blood pours out and that place is made sacred once again, the veil the veil that separates that holiest, holy, holy, holy place from the rest is torn in half. And that is a symbol of God's presence not being containable. That God is with us. That no one, no institution, no empire, no power can tell us that we don't have access to the God who comes to us. It says later in Romans, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that truth is worth starting a riot over. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God.
We thank you for showing us what's worth being angry about. We thank you for showing us that those things that seek to keep us from you can be toppled, can be opposed, can be torn in half. God, we pray that anything that is keeping us from you, anything out in the world, anything in our hearts that is keeping us from you, be exposed for the falsehood that it is. That we would rush to greet you knowing that we have the birthright to be with you. That we are yours and you offer yourself freely back to us. Amen.